Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. Well, we want to go deeper. And as we go deeper, and as we look at what John has written here, as I was preparing, I came across this, this quote. It was actually something that a woman posted online about 18 months ago. And in her state, she said this, this coronavirus thing has really thrown me. I feel like I've lost all sense of certainty. No one knows what will happen next. How do we stay sane when we don't know what's lurking around the corner? There were a lot of people that could really relate to what she was writing back then, and you might still relate to her even now. The truth is, it seems like in our culture, the sense of certainty has faded just a bit. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you listen to people around you, and I do, this is partly what I get to do, and I hear the comments being made, it seems that people have lost their certainty about a host of different things, like the six o'clock news. I've heard people say, you know, are they really telling us everything, or are they only telling us what they want us to hear? There's a loss of a sense of certainty. Uh, people have lost their sense of certainty regarding religious establishments. Many times, people have said, you know, how can we trust our ministry's real motivation after a leader falls? I mean, it's really all about power and control. What's going on? People have lost their sense of certainty regarding slogans. You know, they, they, they used to pull us all together, and yet now people are going, what's really behind that slogan? I mean, do the words really stand for what they say they stand for? And then some have lost their sense of certainty regarding the government. They'll say, you know, who's really in charge? Who, who, who can we really believe? And I can go on and on. And yet while, you know, many people 18 months ago related to that woman's comment online, there was one person who responded. And with a sense of certainty, knew the answer to the question she was raising. And they wrote, it is not that we have lost our sense of certainty. We have lost our illusion of certainty. We never had it to begin with. Well, that's kind of a troubling response, huh? So on one side, we've, you know, there are those who believe you can be certain that you can know certain things. And on the other side, people are saying you really can't be certain about much of anything. And then there's this comment made by a boy's father to Jesus one day. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And so this man held some things to be certain while doubting if other things actually were. So where do you fall in the mix? Where do you fall? Do you have a faith that's deep, certain, and abiding? Do you have a faith that shifts with the direction of the wind? Or do you have a faith that's certain about some things while being uncertain about others? In the midst of all the confusion in our culture, it's my hope. And it's the hope of the Apostle John that you will live with the kind of faith that says, many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. That last line signals the kind of relationship a person has with Jesus that's stronger than a virus Stronger than the news, stronger than a slogan, and stronger than whatever challenges you might be facing right now. Today we're going to talk about certainty. And, and as we do, I think it's important for us to kind of revisit why John wrote what he wrote. Because after all, much of the world at his time was under the iron hand of Rome. Jesus had died on a cross. He, he rose again. He ascended to heaven. 
And afterwards, his band of followers began telling others about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, about the power of the gospel. And thousands and thousands believed. But as time marched forward, most of the apostles had been martyred, killed for their faith, which left only a handful of remaining eyewitnesses to the life, the teaching, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this left an open opportunity for false teachers to emerge who called into question the veracity of the Christian faith. There were a variety of different deceptions going on, but bottom line for most of them, they were saying, you know what? You can't be certain about your faith or your standing before God. Divine reality is much too complex to be contained within any one religious worldview. And these teachings became like a virus that spread like wildfire that quickly overtook the spiritual fire that burned within the hearts of many. As a result, some doubted the Christian faith they had embraced. Some doubted if they were really saved at all. You see, doubt became as popular back then as it is in our culture now. As one modern expert wrote, she said, doubt and disillusionment have become the new form of enlightenment. It somehow sounds more authentic to share our doubt than it is to share our faith with confidence. And this is largely why John wrote the letter that he wrote to those people back then as well as us here today. For the last few years God was giving him on this earth, John wanted to communicate that your faith can be certain. That you can know that you know that you know that you are a child of God. And so he writes these words, 1 John 15. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. Notice I underlined the word eternal for a reason. Everyone that John was writing to had been given life. I mean, after all, they were living. They were breathing, decision-making human beings. But he wanted them to know that there was more for them. More life for them. Eternal life for them. As Christ's brother wrote, why, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So life here is temporary, but our lives can go on and on. In fact, the eternal life John writes about speaks to both the quantity of life, a life that lasts forever, and the quality of life, a life that is deeper, a life that lives out the original capacity God designed for us to experience before the fall. We can never know that life through our own efforts or our own standing. And that's why the totality of verse 11 says it this way. He says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. See, John is reminding us of something critical that Jesus said that's also found in John's gospel. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So again, he speaks of eternal life, a life made possible due to Christ's atoning work on the cross. That Jesus, out of his obedience to his Father, took our sins upon himself, died in our place, and then rose again so that all those who repent and place their hope in him will have eternal life because of him. And that's why in the original Greek, verse 12 doesn't just reference life. John refers to it as the life. You recognize this, right? The Ohio State University. We're not just a university, we're the university. And John is saying, I'm not just talking about life right now. I'm talking about the life that everyone needs. A life that's found in Jesus Christ and following him. Have you made that choice? 
you need to make that choice. John says, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. So do you have life? Do you have Jesus? You see, in a world that lacks certainty regarding a host of different things, John writes, he says, I write these things to you, just to be clear, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. In fact, he wants us to know this so much that he uses the word know more times in chapter 5 than in any other chapter in the entire New Testament. Knowing was paramount for him. Now in the Greek, there's kind of two aspects to it. To know can mean the process of knowing. And it's proven through experience. In fact, we know this well. We refer to this all the time. You know, we make statements like, I know the Bengals are going to make it to the playoffs next season. Or I know this weight loss plan is going to work for me. The others didn't, but this one's going to work. And this form of knowing conveys confidence, but doesn't prove itself to be true until time proves it to be true. And then there's the other form of knowing, to know. It's the state of knowing. It conveys the confidence of saying something because you know it is true. Like when I say, I know that I'm married. There's never a moment in my life where I doubt if I'm married. I am married, and I am a male, and I know this. That's the kind of certainty he's talking about, this form of knowing. And it's based on this form of knowing that John writes. He says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, some people get a little confused with those words, if you're going to be honest, right? I, I think I know actually what some of you are actually thinking right now if you looked at those words. Phil, you just talked about the fact that we can have certainty in knowing something only to talk about a verse here that doesn't seem all that certain. After all, the word if is there. That's conditional. And so why would there be uncertainty about God hearing us? Well, John here is establishing a condition for us that's based on the previous if that leads up to this statement. And this is our memory verse. Will you say it with me right now? Can you put that on the screen? This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, keep that up there for a moment if you can, because I talked this Friday, we have Friday with Phil on Facebook, I don't know if you're following that, but you know, I talked about a lot of people, they lose heart, because they look at that verse, they skip some words. This is the confidence we have in you know, approaching God, that if we ask anything, he hears us. So why isn't he responding to me? Well, we have to ask according to his will. We'll talk about that. And then John goes on to the next verse. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, you got to remember, John's writing to an audience that experienced many others making all kinds of false statements they were selling as truth. The thing is, if we're going to be honest, we sometimes do that ourselves as Christians. I've seen this and heard this. You know, people come up to me, they'll say, well, God told me that I'm gonna get a huge promotion. Well, did your boss tell you that? Because it's kind of important. Uh, God told me that I'm supposed to move to Florida. Or God told me that sleeping with my boyfriend is fine with him since I love him. I've heard a lot of statements made by Christians that they've attributed to God's will when in reality it's very, very much rooted in their own. So how can we be certain about what God's will is? 
Well, first of all, read the Bible in context. Read the Bible in context. Don't read it selectively. People do. They like that verse. They pull it and they twist it and it becomes whatever they want it to say. Uh, but don't, don't do that. Don't read selectively. And don't rely upon what you heard from somebody else if what you heard can't be supported clearly by what the Bible says in context. And that means you take a look at a certain verse and you take a look at what was written before that verse and after that verse to see the heartbeat of that verse. And then if you're still unsure, take time to see if other passages of scripture support what you believe you're seeing there. This is how we can know what God's will is, which will help us pray according to God's will. And then John, he moves on. He says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, oh, pay attention to these words now, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Anyone confused yet? Like, what's going on here? Remember, in order to help us embrace a deeper sense of certainty about our faith, what John's doing, he's writing about two different kinds of sins. And he's drawing a distinction here because the culture of his day, we're saying all kinds of things about sin. Like, you know, sin, it's really not a problem. Sin really doesn't separate us from God. In fact, sin doesn't really exist. Sound familiar? So John wants us to know the difference between these two types of sin so that you may know that you have eternal life. So let's examine them. John first mentions a sin that does not lead to death. What is that? A sin that does not lead to death. Well, basically that's the kind of sin that you and I sometimes commit because we want to or because we're deceived. We fall into it. We don't want to say that thing, but we said it. That person cut us off in traffic, and you know what? Sometimes things just happen, and you say things, and, and suddenly we feel bad about that. And you know, these are the, that's the kind of sin that does not lead to death, because when you're a child of God, what does he say? If we confess our sins, this is early in 1 John, he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. So Christ died for us, he has forgiven our sins, and then as we live this out, as we confess our sins, he forgives us. And this is the good news, and part of the good news of the gospel. But then there's that other sin that he talks about, a sin that leads to death. So what's that? What's well, a mindset that basically says, you know what, I really don't care if I'm living in sin. I mean, it, it really works for me. And that's why I'm going to continue in this, no matter what the Bible or God has to say about it. Ultimately, a sin that leads to death is a rejection of Jesus Christ and the power of the cross. So such a person doesn't mourn over their sin. They actually delight in their sin. They might even tell people about it. This is what the world does. It's what our culture does. It's why John writes, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So he's saying, don't fall prey to this. The whole world is under control of the evil one. Now, when it comes to the evil one, I think the Apostle Peter has warned us about something here that I think needs to come into our conversation. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, pay attention to those words. 
Notice, first of all, that Peter doesn't tell us the devil prowls around like a deceitful lion, even though he's really deceitful. Peter tells us the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. You ever thought about that? What Peter's saying is you can often hear him coming. You can hear him coming. We can hear him prowling. We can hear him roaring. In fact, the devil often gives us all kinds of different warning signs before he tries to devour and destroy us. It's just that some people like the sound of his roar. They're enamored with the way that he prowls. And they know that temptation of sin is close, but you know what? They don't think it's going to harm them. And that's why Peter also says, be alert and of sober mind. Well, many people are alert. They're aware that the enemy is prowling and they're roaring. The problem is they aren't of sober mind. And so they think that his presence will actually be good for them, that he's some kind of a friend, which is why they often listen to him and return to him. The Bible says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. So have you returned? Have you bought the lie? The Bible has long warned us about this, that there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. And that's why John is calling us to a deeper certainty by writing these words. He says, we know, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Now, throughout this series, John's been laying out some steps for us. I don't know if you caught them along the way, but let me just talk about them briefly. Step one is hearing, understanding the life and the message of Jesus. What was he about? What did he say? Step two, then, is believing, putting your trust in the life and the message of Jesus. That's all about salvation. Step three is living, demonstrating the life and the message of Jesus, and some would refer to that as sanctification. So this living stage, this sanctification stage, often includes times of questions and seasons of doubt that lead to deeper assurance. And now John talks about this fourth step, knowing. Declaring with certainty the life and the message of Jesus. So in this stage, doubting has been replaced with conviction. For as the brother of Christ wrote, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And friends, tossing and turning may define the lives of many people who live in this world, but it shouldn't define the life of those who follow Christ. Because in Jesus, we have eternal life, a life like no other so John continues, and we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So when you are in Christ, rooted in Jesus Christ, you have a deep life. You have an everlasting life. And then just to make sure that we don't allow the enemy to rob us, though, of that life, John ends his letter, and he doesn't do so in a normal way. Normally, people will spend some time saying goodbye to people and send my greetings to these people and all these nice things. You'll do this when you end a letter. You know, you know you're ending, and so, hey, you know, looking forward to seeing you soon. You know, remember, God's with you. I'm going to say different things. John, he kind of bypasses all that, and he simply writes, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. The end. Keep yourself from idols. Don't let anything come alongside him or replace him, because if you do, your level of certainty will become a bit uncertain. 
Now, in our culture today, there are Christians who say, well, that, that was really great words for the people back then because, I mean, back then they had little stone figures that they worshiped, little idols, little, you know, things made out of wood that they worshiped. They had idols back then, but we don't have idols anymore, so that's helpful words for them. It doesn't really apply to us. Well, Jeffrey Curtis Poor, uh, he writes about 10 surprising idols that are common for Christians today. Only 10. And I want to just make this note here that, that if I, as I read through these 10, and I'm going to make some brief comments about each one, but if there's any sense of defensiveness that rises up within you when you hear this, don't allow it to grow and don't allow yourself to get angry or blame or point fingers elsewhere. I encourage you to pay attention to that because it might very well be calling to you that this might be a modern day idol in your life. And we fall prey to them. The first one he mentions is identity. Instead of finding your identity in Jesus Christ, sometimes Christians place it in, you know, elsewhere, like our social media following, or in our opinions, or our achievements, or the clothing, the brands that we wear, right? Number two, material things. The pursuit of money and acquisition of things has become really a guiding force for many people. In fact, I have known Christians who actually point to their accumulation of these things as proof for their spirituality. Not what the Bible says. The truth is money isn't the problem here. It's our view of money that's the problem and the throne we tend to place it on. And then there's our job, which in our culture gives us status so there was a day when the job used to be a means to an end. It helped support you. It helped support your family. Now in our culture, what you do is what you are. Not. Don't buy that. And then there's number four, physical appearance. How we appear to others can drive much of what we do. It's not necessarily bad. I mean, how often you go to the gym, how much we spend on products that help us to look younger. You can see it's working for me. And, and you know, and how often... We get a Botox injection. We're called to take care of our bodies, friends. We're not called to worship our bodies. They're temporary while the one who made us is not. Then there's this one, entertainment. And I love a good story, probably better than most, right? I mean, love a good movie, especially if it's based on a true story. I love the arts and dance and drama and all of that stuff. I love it all, music. And yet sometimes I'll ask you know, people like, what, so what'd you do this weekend? Oh, we binged on Netflix all weekend. Okay. Some are enamored with TikTok, obsessed with their favorite podcast. Where does Jesus fit into that? Really, you should be fitting those things in and Jesus should be there first, right? And then there's this little three-letter word, S-E-X. It's everywhere in our culture. In fact, it might even be the thing we think about more than money. And while God gave this to us as a gift in marriage, some have made it like a God that dominates their daily life. And then there's this one, comfort. A lot of Christians surprise themselves in acquiring the latest products that will make their life easier and more comfortable. We can all fall prey to that, but here's the thing. Jesus has called us to follow him which is really hard to do when we become attached to our technology, our sofas, and our recliners. And as it comes to comfort as Christians here in America, and as I mentioned that word, 
Maybe it's prompting you to think about some others who have no idea, Christians who have no idea of what comfort looks like right now. I think about the Christians in Ukraine, in subways, hiding away, running away. And so before I move on to finish the list, let's pray for them. Dear Father, we have become so, so attached to our comforts. Sometimes we don't even realize it. And yet as we sit here in this beautiful place, this comfortable place, this wonderful place, there are those who have no place to call home right now. And they're caged up in their homes, just afraid of what's gonna happen, or they're running, or they're, they are, they're with a bunch of other people all huddled up in a mass group somewhere, and then they're afraid about their very life, what's gonna happen to them. Lord, I pray in the midst of the uncertain times they are in right now, God, that you would make your presence known. Lord, comfort them, strengthen them. And Lord, as we see in the Old Testament times, we, we ask that you would confuse their enemy. Lord, that the plans that uh, Russia has had and what they're trying to implement would uh, really just be confused and not come about like they think it's gonna come about. Lord, we pray that you would be involved in all of this as well, Lord. We pray for your hand over these precious people of Ukraine. Show them your love, your peace. We pray in your name. Amen. Number eight on the list is one that some of you are hoping, like I'm not even going to mention, right? Our smartphones. Smartphones have become an obsession for so many people. I mean, think about this. If you go to a restaurant, I see it all the time. I mean, we, we are part of a conversation sitting at a table with somebody, and we're looking at our phones multiple times, texting while somebody else is trying to talk with us. We're opening our favorite app when we should be putting the other person first. Jesus told us the greatest commandments were what? Love God and love others. And it seems that both are taking a back seat when compared to our love of the smartphones. And then there's this one. Hear me on this one. Our children. Now, the Bible says our children, they're a gift from the Lord, a treasure of the Lord. They are. And yet, many Christian parents have been controlled by a cultural mindset that says pleasing their children, giving them everything they want, and chasing them around a country, this country, due to their love of a particular sport, is not only beneficial, it's essential. I humbly ask, how will your children ever learn to love Jesus when you're teaching them to become lovers of themselves? Trying to fit a little Jesus in on your trip there, whatever you're doing, where's Jesus? Tennis influence. More and more in our culture, our pursuit of influence has become paramount. I mean, there used to be a day not so long ago, and we, we know this day, right, when we all had opinions about certain things. We'd be talking, we'd all have opinions, and sometimes we'd share a few of those. Now we live in a culture known for sharing all of our opinions very loudly. Why? Well, because it gives us a sense of importance, notoriety, and influence. This has actually equipped people who have no degree in a particular subject to, to live like they're experts in that subject, even though they know very little about that subject. But who really cares? They have a lot of followers now. Friends, we are called to follow Jesus. He's our all. He's our everything. 
And when we're certain about our relationship with Jesus Christ, we're not gonna spend time chasing after all these different idols that makes our faith and our witness uncertain. Friends, whoever has the Son has life. Will you say that with me? Whoever has the Son has life. Anything else is a fraud, a placebo. Do you know that you know that you know that you are a child of God? Do you know that you know that you know that you are following Jesus? I wanna give you some time to reflect upon that. Will you pray with me right now? Dear Father, we thank you for your incredible love. Your relentless love that would pursue us because you made us, you love us. You want us to be part of your family. And yet as we live this life, there are so many different things that are calling for our attention or that give us attention and we like it. Help us, Lord, to love you. To make you central in our lives. So Lord, give us clean hands in all of us, clean hearts, that we would not be looking to exalt these things in our lives. We'd be looking to exalt you and you only. So be the center of our lives, Lord. May we truly be following you. Lord, we thank you for your call. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. As in light of your grace, we ask for you to give us clean hands.
stand together and just sing this part, this chorus one more time, asking him to give us clean hands, to give us pure hearts. Oh Lord, we return from our ways to your way. We surrender all to you. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us now lift our souls to another. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us now lift our souls to another. One last time. And give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Let us now lift our souls to another. And give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. Let us now lift our souls to As you heard those words to that song, perhaps for you, God has been working in your heart. And uh, maybe there's a way for you to respond. We have prayer partners that will come forward afterwards. I'd love to pray with you about a need that you have, a concern you have about you, just about life or a family member. We're, we're here for you, so please avail yourself of that opportunity. I love that. Give us clean hands, clean hearts. We will not lift our souls to another. Friends, this world needs to see Jesus. Jesus. Jesus in us and through us. That we would be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. That we'd be living deeper lives rooted in him and in him only. So in light of this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may this then enable you to live with a heart set and a mindset that is deeply rooted in Jesus Christ. And because you are, you live with a life that says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. Friends, you might be the only Jesus that somebody sees this week. Represent him beautifully, powerfully, humbly. This is the call he's placed on us all. Look for opportunities this week at work and your family on your streets to be Jesus to another. And then I encourage you to come back next week and as we begin taking this journey from me to we. Have a great week. See you next weekend. Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.